Lord, how that impacts us today. We do pray for this, Lord. Um, yeah, as you speak to us tonight, I hope you'll help us understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, news broke out this last week that Tara and Uncle Sam broke up. Do you guys know who Tara and Uncle Sam are? Some people? Yeah, oh, thank you. I don't know, if some of you don't know who, but if you ever watch Bachelor in Paradise, the tidy favorite show at the moment, they, they were everyone's favorite couple, all right? This was a few months ago. It was reality TV at its best. These two were so cute, they, they looked like they found true love. They were the perfect match, you know? And I don't watch the show, but even I was rooting for them to get together, because they were cute, right? And on that final episode, to everyone's heart's content, we saw Uncle Sam get down on one knee, that's his nickname, to propose to Tara. It was romantic. Right? It was beautiful. Sadly, it only lasted six months. The breakup was public and tragic. Both Tara and Sam put up on their social media accounts, and the comments started flooding in, showing how much support, you know, but sadness the fans felt towards the couple, towards the new... They felt this devastation of this broken relationship. It was, was sad. I, I was sad, a little bit. And something was so good, now lost. One girl commented, tagging her friend, saying, I don't believe in love anymore. Another commented, saying, What hope is there for the rest of us? There was an Instagram user by the name of Carly Marley. She wrote this, This has destroyed me. And the one that got repeated the most in cap, in cap locks was... What in the actual... Now, you might not care about Tara and Uncle Sam. I know a lot of you probably don't care. This is why you're telling me this. But these fans felt it. They really felt it. This breakup between this cute couple really made these fans feel the brokenness of our world. Now, that might be trivial to you. I, I get it. But you and I both have seen or experienced things that, that do destroy us that do make us doubt love or, or question what in the actual, right? A politician this last week put up a tweet saying this, imagine living in a place where people get more upset by a plastic bag ban than locking children up in indefinite detention. We don't have to imagine that. It's a reality in our country. And there were multiple news articles over the last couple of weeks of people complaining at supermarkets because single-use plastic bags were banned. Yet our country and media outlets stay silent when it comes to the lockup of refugees and asylum seekers who have nothing. It's tragic. I read in the news 250,000 Syrians have, have been displaced from their homes because of war in just the last three weeks. I read in another part of the world, in Bangladesh, around 200,000 Rohingya refugees are in fear of their lives as monsoon, seasonal floods and landslides put their refugee camps at risk. We still know Israel and Palestine are still fighting. I still hear about young women being forcefully taken and trafficked into sex slavery. The rate of anxiety and depression and bullying in our world is still very much on the rise and shows like 13 Reasons Why on Netflix tells us why. It shows us the reality of it, that we need to talk about it and do something. You see, you and I, we're, we're, we have to really face the brokenness in our world, don't we? And we felt it. We felt the weight of the shame, our loneliness. We felt our need for love and approval. We felt the weight of broken relationships, feeling excluded, feeling rejected, feeling simply just not good enough. Now I could go on, but, but the bottom line is this. There's something very wrong with our world. There's something broken about it. 
Now, I know many of us here, we want to save the world, right? And we do this by educating, raising awareness, going and helping charities. We write journal articles about medicine or science by writing policies and trying to enact change, by trying to be a force of good in our, in our society. And yes, they are good things to do, great things to do. They improve the world we live in. But the reality we all have to come to, to the grips with is, is this. Our world is still broken. In a world where education is so accessible, where the internet allows us, no matter our advancements or whatever it is, there's still going to be pride. There's still going to be love. There's still going to be greed and this need for power. Why is that? We're going to discover what is behind the brokenness of our world, and we're going to also see that in, the, in this passage, the next step, how, how the Bible provides a solution as well. So in our previous week, just to catch up, we, we read about God's creation in Genesis 1. We heard about the intimacy and the beauty of creating humans and the value and goodness of work as he designed. And keep in mind that we saw in those first two chapters that God had a good and ordered creation. But here in chapter 3, things start falling apart. What was once ordered now becomes disordered. And our story, our story, the beginning, start with tragedy. It involves these three sets of characters, right? And the interactions that we'll see the actions of the serpent, we'll see the actions of Adam and Eve, the humans, and the actions of God. So let's get into it. Have your Bibles open, follow along with me, because I'm going to unpack this for us. Chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in, is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, first scene. There's a snake in our story. I don't know how you feel about that, but there's a snake. We're told it's craftier than all other animals. We're told that it's one of God's creations. But by far the strangest thing we're faced with is that this snake can talk. Right? That, that is weird, isn't it? Perhaps it's using powerful mouth, I'm not sure. But rather than running away in fear, with total coolness and calmness, right? The woman talks to the serpent. Which says a lot about how God created the world. It was good and harmonious. The woman isn't afraid of the snake. If it was me, I'd be running in the other direction. But let's focus on what's being said here. The serpent in its slyness says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, this, this serpent brings this proposition to the woman. But the serpent misquotes God, doesn't he? He uses this word, really. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? We hear this sort of mockery, this, this serpent mocking God at this moment, how ridiculous it is to, to forbid the humans to, to eat. But we know that's not true. If you have your Bibles up in chapter 2, God made everything good. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day there, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the serpent here is twisting the words of God, but let's see how the woman responds. She says, We may eat of every tree, but there's a tree we can't eat of. But she too misquotes God, doesn't she? She says, They can't touch it either. If they touch it, they will die. You see, with just a question, the serpent has got this, this woman doubting God, confused. 
instead of being grateful for all that God has given to her, she's focused on the one thing that God has with her. What the serpent does is, is the serpent leads Eve away from God, doesn't he? It. He throws, he throws shade on God. He makes Eve doubt God's goodness. And isn't that, isn't that true in life sometimes? The struggle is really real for her here. The struggle is real for us too. Don't we sneer sometimes at God's commands and we try to usurp his authority with our own? You know, what the Bible tells us later is that the serpent was Satan himself, the devil, leading people away from God. And we can read that in um, chapter 12 in, of Revelation or chapter 20 if you want to take note of those things. You can read it later. But he's known as the great deceiver, the great liar who leads people away from God. That's what he does, Satan. And in Genesis 3, Satan uses creation, the snake, to twist the good order of creation, to tempt the woman to disobey God. Maybe that explains why the snake is talking, because Satan is using the snake at this moment. But notice how the snake doesn't force the woman to eat the fruit. With his slyness, he, he leads her to think that God's command is ridiculous, that she's missing out. You guys have heard of the term FOMO, right? Everyone uses that on me usually. But, you know, the fear of missing out, right? What's, that's sort of what's going on here in Genesis 3. Like, at the beginning of our world, FOMO existed. Isn't that crazy? And Satan here is tempting her. You don't want to miss out on being like God, do you? You know, the one thing the man and woman, you know, aren't allowed to eat. Don't you want to know what good and evil is? Don't you want just a little taste of it? Did God really say that? Isn't that how it begins for us in our heads? Did God really say that? And there's that mocking tone we hear from our friends, from our social circles, from the media. It's typical, isn't it, that peer pressure and wanting to fit in makes us question God in our lives sometimes. We're afraid to stand up for what we believe. We're afraid that we'll get rejected by those circles around us. You know, we hear it like, like are, you, are you really going to resist from, from sex before marriage? <laughs> really? Come on now, really? Are you really going to give your hard-earned money to the poor when you could take a really luxurious holiday? Really? Do you really think that the rude person that just cut you off on the road deserves your patience and grace? Really? <laughs> really? Surely not. Are you, are you going to really let God determine how you live in this world? Really? And the one I've heard so many times is, doesn't God just want you to be happy? Really? Doesn't he just want you to be happy? Causing us to rethink whether we just, we want to trust and follow God's commands or, or our fleeting heart and our emotions at that moment. And the voices around us seem to be mocking us, like we're missing out on something. Friends, this is the voice of temptation. And much like the, the voice of the serpent or Satan at, at work in this world, Satan wants to lead us away from God. He wants to plant those seeds that make us think, surely God doesn't want us not to have this thing. Surely God wouldn't mind if we had a taste at least. And here's the lie the serpent is saying, God isn't really good. You see, that's a lie in my heart and in your heart, in the heart of humanity. I know God says this, but it feel really good. I know God says this, but I'd feel really happy if I did get to do it. I know God says this, but YOLO. 
When we're tempted, we're being faced with the option, do we trust in the goodness of God or not? You see, one thing the woman and the serpent doesn't recognize in the garden is that God is so abundantly good and generous. He's provided a garden full of trees and fruit to be eaten. It's in this garden there is blessing. He says you can eat of any tree. So you have a relationship with me here in this garden. But there's just one tree that you shouldn't eat of because if you eat of it, you'll die. And it's out of his love and, his, and their safety that he calls them not to eat from it. It's not just some prohibition. It's not just some rule God wants them to follow. It's for their safety. And so they're not seeing the goodness or love or protection of God who's provided everything, who's taken care of them. But they'd rather trust in this snake. Do we trust that God in his goodness has provided for us in abundance? When we see evil or the, or the devil at work, it starts with that temptation doesn't it? That attitude, a temptation to find validation for power, for greed, for lust, to be selfish, to be prideful, an attitude to play God over our own lives because we don't trust Him. And in doing so, an outright disobedience and our rejection of God's Word, which was designed to be good for humanity. We want to play God. So you see, part of the brokenness in our world is because there is this invisible war at play. And each day we're going to battle with the temptations that surround us. Now, I know there are some in this room who, who, who are thinking, this sounds absurd to believe that there is a, a Satan that exists. It sounds like a fairy tale. We're fooling ourselves. I mean, what does he look like? Right? A red guy with horns, cape, and a pitchfork? I don't know. <laughs> but there's, there is a line in the movie, um, The Usual Suspect. Who's seen The Usual Suspect? Classic movie. You guys have to watch it. It's on Netflix. But one of the, the characters in it said, the greatest trick the devil pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. It's so true, isn't it? Because no one wants to think that there's an evil force or power in this world leading people to stray from God. There are only good people and bad people. But friends, it's not that simple. We know that it's not that simple. It's much more complex than that. You see, the Christian belief the understanding is your story and my story and humanity's story involves this nasty snake, Satan who's the great liar, the, the tempter at work in our world now we know things are going to go south from here don't we, Adam and Eve are going to eat the fruit we saw the actions of the serpent, we're going to see the actions of the humans now, follow along with me, verse 6 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I'm going to stop there. Have you ever looked at food? Yeah. And looked at food and saw that it was good, like pleasing to the eye, desirable, and all your self-control just goes out the window. <laughs> like you're on a diet, but that chocolate looks so good. You've got high cholesterol like me, but that fried chicken looks so, so juicy. There was no self-control here. She was, she was actively participating in this disobedience. I know how that feels. And it comes from this heart that has this, for her, an attitude of distrust towards God. In biblical and Christian terms, this is what we call sin, friends. Sin. Putting yourself in the place of God and, and finding your satisfaction beyond God. Believing that you know better than Him. 
And at the heart of it is, is this attitude, this attitude that overflows into action. But this idea of sin doesn't have to be active either. Look at the passiveness of her husband, Adam, next to her. We're told she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That's it. He didn't try to stop her. He didn't smack the fruit out of her hand. No fruit for you. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do anything. You see, in his passiveness, he rejects God too. You know, when we ought to do something good but passively let it slide, when we ought to help someone but in our laziness we don't, when we ought to speak up for injustice but instead keep our mouths shut and let the injustice continue, we need to call it what it is. Sin comes in the form of both active and passive disobedience to God. We commit sin or we omit from doing what we should do. And I know this isn't just a male problem, but I do want to speak to the men in the room. We've got to take this seriously. We've got to step up our game. Adam just stood there. Are we going to stand by in our passiveness when we see others hurting around us? When you're faced with an opportunity to say something or serve someone? Will we just stand by saying, and just freeze up? Or actually do something? Men, be men, as God designed us to be. Leaders who want to make God look good, not ourselves. Speak, do something. We can't just sit idle and, and passive in our sins of laziness and pride. Now, I know that's not just for men, but I do want to say that to the men in our room, because I think it's true, very true for men in general. You see, that's what Adam does. And so they eat the fruit, and they reject God in doing so. See, the sin isn't so much the action, but what they're seeking after, to be like God themselves. That's what eating the fruit represents. Sin. Now, no one in our day and age likes talking about sin. You know, I've heard people say they're offended when I call them a sinner. <laughs> the term is old school, it's offensive. But let's understand it clearly. Sin isn't just being bad. It's not just being naughty. People don't like being labeled as sinners. I get that, because that means that they're bad people. That's what they think of. But that's not what sin means in the Bible. It begins with acknowledging that God is king over our lives, and we're not. And so when we approach life, we're approaching as we as if we play king over our own life. Selfishness and, and pride, jealousy and anger, impatience and greed, those are sins, but they're just an overflow of really a sinful heart where God isn't at the center or the king over our lives. And so we look at the world around us and we've softened to this idea of what sin is because we don't like talking about this idea of being sinful or sinners. And we instead we want to say things like, oh, we just made a mistake. Or, none of us are, are perfect. It was an accident. I'm only human. Right? And that, that is all true. That is true. But, but why? Why is that all true? Because our mistakes, our imperfections, our wrongdoing, when we hurt another person or when we're self-centered, being human means we have a sinful nature. No matter how good you and I think we are, no matter how many good deeds we've accomplished this week, no matter, no matter how many times you've given your money to charity, Good things to do, I applaud you, keep doing them. But all the good things you and I can do with our lives, at the end of the day, we're still sinners before God. We're not perfect. God is this holy, righteous God. And sin at the heart of it, what we do is we dethrone God. And we put ourselves on the throne to rule rather than submit to God as our ruler. 
friends are. I'm a sinner. I'm human. I'm not perfect. I'm not God. I'm a sinner. We're going to get to the solution of sin in a second, but what happens as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman? There's a few things to take note of. What they, the first thing they do is they cover their nakedness, right? I'm glad they do. I don't want to see any of you here naked either. But why is this important? Read 2.25 with me. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's in chapter 2.25, right? Chapter 2, the chapter before. They felt no shame being naked. They, at this moment though, for the first time in the history of humankind, they felt the feeling of shame after eating the fruit. Why is that important? Humanity changed at this moment. There's a... a uh, professor, Dr. Brene Brown, she writes books on shame, and she says this, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. That feeling of being unworthy. Friends, this is the, the beginning of what Christians call the fall of humanity, the, the great fall. It's here in chapter 3. Instead of being free from shame, what happens is they feel it for the first time. Humanity now looks inward. Instead of being known and loved and having that intimate relationship with God and satisfaction in Him alone, they, they feel unsatisfied. They feel never good enough. They feel unworthy. And so humanity is seeing themselves in a different light. And we care so much about how people see us more than how God sees us. We feel embarrassment, humiliation. We feel loneliness. We need validation, approval, affirmation, and acceptance. And we search for an identity because of that emptiness. This is what sin does. Sin makes us feel unworthy before God and before others. See, this is more than just covering up our private parts with giant-sized fiddly fig leaves. The brokenness we all feel in our lives at some point comes from sin. And so they feel shame. And what do they do? They hide. It's not surprising, right? Shame makes us hide from God and from others. Isn't hiding away from everyone and, and God our natural reaction when sin when we when we sin when we feel ashamed of ourselves? I know I want to, I know I want to just run away from everything, run away from everyone when I feel ashamed. When I have to face up to my sin. Adam and Eve, they hide from God among the trees. God goes looking for them. Yo, Adam, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to? You know, so God's asking him these questions. Like God knows where he is. God knows what's happened. But he gives Adam this chance to explain himself. And so here's the thing. Here's the second thing that sin does to us. The thing we need to take note of. Look at how they respond. Verse 12. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, Well, well the serpent deceived me. You see? And I ate now, do you know how messed up this is? God created the world as, as good. He made man and woman and called them to steward and have dominion over the creation and the animals, yeah? And can you see how sin has reversed all this? God isn't even in the picture, nor do they want to follow him. So when asked what happened, the man doesn't take leadership or ownership of the role that God called them to. He shifts the blame, doesn't he? That woman you gave me... <laughs> She's the mistake, not me. I want to make a return. I want to exchange. God, you made them say, I want a better woman. And like shame, sin makes us look inward and self-preserved. We put the blame on others, don't we? 
We think only of ourselves. We don't want to own up to our mistakes or our wrongs or our sins. We want to blame someone else. We want to blame society. We want to blame our culture, our upbringing. We want to blame our parents, our peers, our wives, even the snake or, or the dog who ate our homework. We want to self-preserve, even though our very heart and our actions and our thoughts and our selfishness hurts God. Have you ever thought about that? That we don't want to take ownership for our sin often. We want to blame others. Sometimes we blame God. And that our sin actually hurts God. Yet instead of saying sorry, we just put the blame on us. We, we shift blame. The words I'm sorry are so powerful. We don't ask for forgiveness from God or from others. We don't say sorry, please forgive me. Adam doesn't ask for it here. Instead, like Adam, we, we shift. God, you made the mistake. You put this woman in the garden with me. It's your fault, not mine. It's like, God, God, you put hot, attractive men and women around me. I couldn't help but commit adultery. I couldn't help but look at porn. God, I can't help it if you gave me this great job and all this money for myself. I can't help but be greedy. God, I can't help it. You gave me incompetent people to work with. I can't help it if I get impatient and rude. Or something even more simple that I'm sure many of us have wanted to say, God, you made me this way. It's not my fault I'm like it exposes shame and it makes us blame. That rhymes. It makes us blame and it exposes shame. We wonder why the world is the way it is and here is one of the reasons. The sin of humanity. It's time to own it. I am what's wrong with our world. It starts here. It's time to be honest. I am greedy. I am proud. I am lustful. I am selfish. I am impatient. I often want respect. I want validation. I want acceptance. I want the glory. I want to find satisfaction in all those things that aren't God's. Don't you sometimes? And I'll foolishly, actively or passively do or think things so I get to sit on the throne of God in my life instead of God himself. The British author G.K. Chesterton was asked for his opinion by the Times on what's wrong with the world and he wrote, Dear Sir, I am sincerely yours. You see, when we accept and own this, it changes things, doesn't it? When we understand our sin, it actually makes us realize we're all equal before God. That's, does that blow your mind? We're all equal before God? Before God, whether you're, a, you're a highly educated, elite professional in your field, or you're someone who's done time behind bars, living paycheck to paycheck. Whether you're someone who's light-skinned or dark-skinned, you have a straight, bald cut, or dreadlocks. The reality is... We're all sinful before God. When we understand that, it changes the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. It changes the way we interact. It helps us to come from a, a place of patience and humility instead of pride and snobbiness. We aren't better than others. We all have the sin of humankind in our hearts. You see, that's something that the, the doctrine of sin tells us. But we can't stop there. Let's keep going in Genesis 3. We, we looked at the actions of the serpent and the, the human, so let's look finally at the actions of God. In the final verses, I'm not going to read this, but chapter 3 from verse 14, we read about how God responds. God curses the snake, right? He brings punishment upon, upon the woman and the man for what has happened. God responds to the sin with judgment. And so what we see is an experience in the, the brokenness of our, our world is actually because God has judged sin. 
You see, sin can't go unanswered. God has to judge because that's justice. We want a God who's just, right? He has to judge sin. And so, firstly, the snake is cursed above all other animals. He has to crawl on his belly and eat dust. The woman has to deal with the pains of childbirth and also the, the power struggle between sexes. And the man's work now becomes toilsome labor and painful. All these bad things are going to happen. That's not even the worst part. You see, the worst part of God's judgment is that they're going to experience death. Physical death when God says that from dust you were made and dust you will return. But even more tragic is the spiritual death. We read about it in verse 23 to 24. God drove the man out of the garden east beyond Eden. Why is that so tragic? Because the garden was a place of blessing and communion with God. You see, the real judgment that humans experience isn't just pain, that work is sometimes painful. Yes, that sucks. But the worst part about sin is that we have to face the reality of death and separation from God for eternity. You see, that's the judgment of God for our sin. In our sin, we're separated from the goodness of God. We can't be in His presence. And here in chapter 3, everything that God had created was good, has fallen apart. What was once ordered and good is now disordered and in chaos. This is what sin has done. It flips the good creation mandate of God on its head. And so our story begins with a creation problem, not from God, but from the sins of, of a man and a woman, which has now corrupted and polluted all of humankind across all generations. So you and I now live in a world where separation from God means we have to face moments where there is no joy, where we don't feel love, where intimacy isn't always there. So we're going to feel moments of deep sorrow. We're going to feel moments of guilt, of anger, division, moments of anxiety, moments of loneliness, where sickness and death is real. We'll feel like no one understands us, understands us that we're needy, that we're broken. And it shouldn't surprise us. Because God's judgment means separation from Him. And if He's the source of all that is good and right and ordered, shouldn't be surprised. If we stopped there, though, that'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Our world is messed up, doomed, and we can't do anything about it. No level of education or awareness will fix it. So we say, let's just hope that a little bit of good can make a difference in this big world around us. That's as far as our hope goes. But what if there was a greater hope to the brokenness of our world? Look again at chapter 3. God in chapter 3 isn't all about the cursing and judgment. What are the sum of the things that he does? Verse 21, he made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to wear. How did he get that skin? He probably had to kill an innocent animal. Blood was shed so Adam and Eve could be clothed. Isn't that interesting? God said that they would die if they ate the fruit. Instead, an animal dies in their place. You see, the first sacrifice for sin here was made. But also in verse 22 to 23, we're also told that God takes them out of the garden, otherwise they might eat from the tree of life. Where did this tree come from? Why is this bad? Don't we all want to be in one? But by God's grace, he actually doesn't want them to live forever in sin. See, that act, that act is actually one to provide a way out. They're just they're small acts of grace to show God's character, but the greatest hope we have in humanity is actually seen in verse 15. Let's read it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Talking to the serpent. That's the curse. 
all the sins of the Satan. There's a promise here of someone to come that will crush the, the snake. There's going to be a, a descendant of the woman who's going to come along, who's going to crush the forces of evil. Yes, God promises one to come that will defeat Satan himself. Friends, the seed of the woman that comes is in the Son of God, the man Jesus. He's the one who defeats Satan at the cross through his death and his resurrection. He makes Satan a laughingstock. Satan is just another creature that has no power compared to Jesus. And Jesus shows us that in the wilderness when he is the one who, who faces, faces temptation, overcomes temptation by Satan himself. In Luke chapter 4, you can read about it. Jesus overcomes Satan. And he shows us that when he dies, he disarms Satan. And his power, so that you and I, when we have the, the Spirit of God in us, when we have Jesus with us, Satan has no power over us. Jesus is the one who crushes Satan. But Jesus is also the one who comes, and he dies for the sin of humanity. We no longer have to face the death that we deserve from our sin. Jesus takes that for us. What Jesus does is, he becomes the greatest sacrifice in human history. He doesn't clothe, clothe us with clothes, he clothes us with righteousness. He takes away your sin and my sin, and through going to the cross, he dies and, and substitutes his life for ours. He lifts the curse on humanity. And the punishment and judgment, that separation from God, he lifts that. And by doing so, he restores and unites us back to God, so we no longer have to face death ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, I'm not sure if you've ever felt the weight of this. God sent his one and only son to the cross for your sin and my sin. He killed his, his own innocent son so that we could be clothed in righteous glory, friends. I don't deserve a God like this. You know, I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his mercy or his grace. I don't deserve the peace and hope he offers. I don't deserve even my everyday blessings of family, friends, work, and a, a church family that I love. I don't deserve any of it. I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. I deserve death. I actually deserve eternal separation from God. Yet, in his love, in his grace, Jesus came to our world. And he willingly died for me and for you. He didn't have to. He did no wrong. He had no guilt. He was sinless. But he got crucified on a, on a tree. A Roman cross so that you and I could be free. This wasn't cheap grace, friends. This wasn't cheap at all, was it? Our Lord Jesus had his body broken. His soul crushed. His blood shed. He was forsaken and felt the weight of the judgment of sin on his own shoulders. He was entirely, in every respect, innocent. And God turned his face away from his own son, so that you and I could stand before God redeemed. I am so undeserving. And so are you. We need to look at his cross, and not our thrones to save us. Jesus is the hope for humanity, friends. The gospel is good news because Christ solves the issue of sin as it relates to humanity, and the consequence is the renewal of the world. And although in this life we'll still feel and see the brokenness in our world, Jesus says there'll be a day where there'll be a new earth, 
a world to come where there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more death. That new kingdom is coming when he returns again. You see, when we look to Jesus and see him as our saviour and king, it changes everything, doesn't it? Our obedience to God doesn't come from this guilty obligation or fear or reluctance. We obey God not because we've done this cost-benefit analysis. If I obey God, good things will happen for me and I get to go to heaven. Do you think Adam and Eve knew that the whole world was, was going to be doomed, miserable, enslaved, full of murder, deceit, and division after they ate the fruit? If they did, they probably wouldn't have been there. <laughs> but even if that, they did that cost analysis, they would have done it to make themselves feel a bit better about themselves. What if they obeyed God simply because he's God, and they're not? Because they already believed good things have happened to them. What if they truly believed in the goodness of God, in his love, his rule, and his provision? You see, Adam and Eve didn't want to trust God, they'd, they'd rather trust the serpent. But friends, today this is our challenge. Do we know the goodness of God in our lives? Have we seen and believed and experienced the goodness of God in Jesus? The gift and grace of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you and for me. Do you believe he's given you a relationship with the infinite and majestic God of the universe? We get to be with the source of joy and goodness himself. How does that affect the way you and I live? Does it drive you to repentance and joy because God is actually worth it? Doesn't that goodness of who God is, our loving Father, isn't that more than enough? Doesn't God alone satisfy? As we, as we look at the broken world around us, we see, our, our very, we see the world suffering. And it grieves us, doesn't it? We wonder why the world is what it is. Why is it so broken? We wonder why some are more obsessed with their fame or status than sacrificially loving another person. We wonder why children have to face the devastation of war because men and women want territory and power. We wonder why life is so fragile, why, why sickness and disease takes life so swiftly sometimes. We wonder why we ourselves mess up. We do things that hurt others or don't do things when we could help others. Friends, we live in a fallen world. It's not what it's meant to be. Sin sucks. But it's a real condition that has infected, really, every human being since the days of Adam and Eve. We need to face the reality that our story begins with tragedy. But to also know that our story doesn't end there. Where will your story find its great hope in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being our God who has given us so much in Jesus that we get to know you and have a relationship with you. We thank you, God, that we've seen your provision, your blessings, that we get to have intimacy with you. Lord, for some of us in this room, we still don't know that. Some of us still don't know that. Some of us still don't know the goodness of who Jesus is and how he's taken away the guilt and shame of sin. But we no longer need to blame others. We can own it because we know we've been saved from it. So we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see the goodness of who Christ is on the cross. That through your love and your grace and your mercy, you saw us in need and you chose to save us, even, in, even though we were undeserving of it. And so we pray, Lord, in our joy and our thankfulness, we want to live for you. We want to respond to you. We want to repent of our sin. We want to put your name in bright light, not our own. We pray for that, Lord, for your glory and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.